Those who would like to follow along in your own Bible, whether you got a physical Bible, whether you got a phone, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We've been going through the whole book of Acts, and uh, you know we're more than halfway through. <laughs> we're probably about three quarters of the way through. And uh, w- what we've seen in the book of Acts, you know, the book of Acts, some of your Bibles will say this is the Acts of the Apostles, but I've been calling it, no, that's not an original title. The original title is just Acts, and the better subtitle would be the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit through believers. Why? Because how we see God working through Acts is not just through apostles. It's through believers. It's through um, deacons and elders and just normal Joes like you and me. And the Holy Spirit is, can be at work through each and every one of us. And so what we see, how God was at work in this first generation of Christians is the same way He wants to be at work through you and me. Because the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead and that dwelled in all of these people in the book of Acts dwells in you and me. And He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how the Spirit was working in these first Christian communities is how He wants to work here at Mission City Church and in churches all around the globe. Now, uh, what we've seen in Acts chapter 17, if you were here with us last Sunday... Uh, you know that we've seen that Paul is in modern-day Greece at this point, and how he had just got run out of t- town, a town named Berea, which was in northern Greece, a, a place called Macedonia, and how he fled to southern Greece, uh, a more popular city, a, a city by the name of Athens. So, you know, at this point, uh, Paul is on his second missionary journey. So his first missionary journey, he just spent in uh, Asia Minor, and it, which is modern-day Turkey. Well, his second missionary journey, he, goes, he travels through Asia Minor, about 700 miles, and the Holy Spirit says, you're not supposed to stay there. I want to send you to new territory. So he gives him a supernatural dream with a man from Macedonia crying out, help us. So Paul says, I know the interpretation. I'm supposed to go to Macedonia and help somebody. So they go, him and Luke and Timothy and Silas, and they go from Troas and they sail over to Philippi. And in Philippi, what happens? Well, Paul probably has, uh, meets the man who is crying out, help me, right? Whether it was Lydia who saved with all of her women at, at, at the river who are praying, whether it's the Philippian jailer who's about to commit suicide and Paul presents uh, the gospel to him and he's saved. He, he, he establishes a mighty church in Philippi, a great uh, populous city. In fact, a city he writes a whole letter to, the Philippians, right? Well, what happens is he's run out by... Um, he's run out there actually by uh, an angry pagan, not, not the Jews this time. He's run out by a pagan who uh, uh, accused him of, um, you know, uh, casting out a, a python spirit from his slave girl so he wasn't making any more money. So he, he flees from Philippi and he comes to a town named Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, he preaches there. He establishes a church there, but then some, some Jews get jealous of what he's preaching, and they run him out of town, so Paul goes to Berea, and he's in Berea, and he's reasoning with them from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited one for. He, he is the Christ, and it says that the Bereans were of a more noble character, and so unlike the Thessalonians, they got their Bibles out, right? They got their scrolls out. And every day they were searching those scrolls to see if what Paul was relaying to them was true. It's a picture of what all Christians should be. We should be diligent to to search out the truth for ourselves. Well, what happens is that the Thessalonican Christians, who had run him out of town, who were about 100 miles away, they hear of Paul's work in Berea. And they come to Berea, and they're really mad at Paul, and so... They run Paul out of Berea, and he escapes by night, right? Kind of like he escaped by night from Damascus, being lowered through a a basket, or lowered through a window on a basket. And he goes to Athens. Luke doesn't tell us the route he takes. A lot of times he does. But most likely he took a route by sea because there was a giant mountain range guarding uh, Athens from uh, Berea. 
and he comes to Athens. And that's what we're going to pick up this morning. You know, um, Paul's missionary effort in Athens was largely among the pagan philosophers at a famous site called Mars Hill. Anyone ever heard the phrase Mars Hill before? Now, Mars Hill is actually part of a lot of different Christian ministries. Kind of like, has anyone heard of the word Berean being part of a, a, a Christian ministry before? Like a Berean college or a Berean Bible a church or a Berean Bible study. Well, what, that, what is a Berean uh, Bible college or Bible study means? It means we are people who are serious about being students of Scripture. Well, what's a church that's called Mars Hill? There's actually a lot of mega churches in America that are called Mars Hill. What are they trying to communicate? They're trying to communicate that we want to have an apologetic ministry to our culture. We want to, we want to speak the, in a way that our culture can understand and engage them at not just a scripture level, but a philosophic level. And they're trying to say, we want to mimic the teaching style of Paul when he was at, at Athens among all of these eminent philosophers. And... Um, you know, so Paul, uh, when he heads down to, to Athens, um, he, he, comes, uh, uh, he becomes distressed. Let's look at it. We're going to pick up in verse 16, Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them, he's talking about Silas and Timothy, who he left in Berea. While Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Let's, let's stop right there. Now, more than any other city Paul had ever visited or ever would visit, this city in particular was jammed with idols, filled with idols. In fact, as Paul came sailing into that harbor, on the large hill he would have seen the great uh, Acropolis with the Parthenon, and he would have seen a giant statue of the Greek goddess Athena that was right near the Parthenon. As he walked through the streets, they were literally littled, littered with idols on the left and in, on the right. In fact, some of the ancient writers said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a human being. They called it a forest of idols. In fact, the very name of the city Athens came from the Greek goddess Athena, who was known as the city's patron deity, the, the one they worshipped and sacrificed to more than any other of their idolatrous gods. She was the goddess associated with wisdom and skilled arts, and they took great pride in their intellectual history that had uh, really begun from the time of the great philosopher Socrates 500 years earlier and continued on through guys like Plato and Aristotle, a, a lot of whose ideas influenced much of Western civilization, all the European countries, and even some of the, uh, the American uh, philosophy behind the Constitution is, is, is partly based in the ideas of, of these kind of men. And, and so, so these guys have a, a deep intellectual history that not just shaped modern Western world, but even the Roman world of Paul's own day. So while Rome may have been the capital of that ancient world, Athens was really the idea capital, the philosophical capital. And so it, 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 though it had this eminent history in the past, by the time Paul's day rolled around, there was only about 25,000 people who lived in Athens. And it was kind of even a tourist city of that day. People would come from all over and They'd see all these ancient god statues. They'd see all the ruins from their glorious past. And they would hear from all of these eminent philosophers who lived there who had subsidized teaching positions. So basically, as Luke will go on to say, all they did was uh, talk about new things and hear new things. Well, they did that because they, they were paid by the city to do such a thing. But when, when Paul arrives there and he sees all of this idolatry in the culture, which is supposed to be the intellectual capital of the known world, of the Roman world, what are we told? Luke tells us that his spirit was provoked within him. You know, that is the proper Christian response to cultural idolatry. It is to be provoked 
within. The Christian conscience should be stung when they see pagan idolatry and culture. Uh, other translations say that he was distressed. The word can be mean deeply troubled, stirred within, aroused to anger. You know, the Bible teaches that the Christian is to be righteous in an angry way. In fact, Paul tells the Ephesians, you know, be angry, but do not sin. In fact, he tells the Romans to hate what is evil, right? To cling to what is good. We are called to be distressed by people, by culture that is taken captive by demonic powers and thought patterns. We are to be provoked. We are to have our spirits stirred in a troubled way. That is the proper response to any culture that is soaked in idolatry, whether it's the idolatry of statues or it's the idolatry of uh, philosophy. Well, it's the same sort of thing that should trouble the heart in some sense. Why? Because we know these people are in bondage and we want to see them set free in the glorious liberty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it is important for Christians to be reminded that we're not supposed to be numb to the idolatry of culture. If we are numb to it, you know what will happen? You'll assimilate to it. If we coddle it, we'll eventually think that it's not that big of a deal. It no longer alarms you. It no longer distresses you. It no longer troubles you. You're no longer provoked within, but you're like, well, it is what it is, and you know, we just gotta you know, let it be. But remember, Paul was a Jewish man who's deeply steeped in the scriptures. And idolatry is a big no, no, no from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, when you look at the Ten Commandments that God gave on Mount Sinai, the first three really have to do with the subject of idolatry. Let's read it. It's in Exodus 20, verse 2. This is the command that God wrote with his own finger on stone. You know, God didn't write many parts of the Bible. This is one of the ones he wrote with his own finger. <laughs> Exodus 20, verse 2. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So, you know, what God makes very, very clear from the beginning of the Bible to the end is that how we think about him, how we worship him, is very important, Right? He wants us to think about him according to his self-revelation. He wants us to think about him according to how he has revealed himself in Scripture, how he has revealed himself in his Son, Jesus Christ. As Jesus says, he desires that we worship him in spirit and in truth. Many of the pious Jews of Jesus' and Paul's day were very careful about keeping the command to stay far away from all idolatry. They would not allow any idolatrous images into Jerusalem or their homes or their sacred sites. The early Christians were just as concerned about this. In fact, you know, John, when he ends his first epistle of 1 John, his last verse in 1 John 5.21 is this. My little children, keep yourself from idols. Like this is the parting word. And right before it, he says that God is made most known and manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. So how does the Christian keep himself from idols? Well, he keeps himself from idols by worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, right? In fact, Paul, he counsels the Christians to stay away from the idolatrous feasts of their culture. Because if they were going to participate in the feasts of idols, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, they're actually having fellowship with demons, because though the idol statue is nothing, there is a power that can be used in especially the worship services and the feasts of these idolatrous practices. And Paul says, you know, if you're communing with the table of, of, of these idols, you're, you're having fellowship with demons. And he's so, so don't, don't do that, right? Now, if something's been sacrificed to idols, it can be sanctified by the word and prayer. And if it's outside of the context of idolatrous worship, it's fine. You can eat it, right? God, you know. 
You pray over it and it's all good. Go ahead and get and eat it. But don't participate in some sort of idolatrous pattern of life. He wants us to be removed from idolatrous patterns of culture, idolatrous patterns of life. He wants to see the captives set free and stay free. You know, when I was uh, in sixth grade, I had my first trip, a missionary journey. My, my parents are missionaries, many of you know, Keith and Heidi Hershey, and my dad has established works all over the world, in Central America, and Middle East, uh, Europe, Africa, Asia. And so I was able to visit a lot of these sites. And on this trip around the world, we had one day layover in Athens. <laughs> and so uh, I visited Mars Hill. I still remember seeing a plaque saying, this is Mars Hill, this is where Paul preached. Uh, I remember seeing the Acropolis. And I remember going through that city, and it was still... It was the most idolatrous city I've ever walked through. This day, 2,000 years later, not only is it sh it's strewn with the, the remains of ancient idols, but every store I walked in, a gift store and stuff like that, prominent pornography everywhere. All the postcards, pornography. Idols, erect phalluses everywhere. And as a sixth grade you know, boy, it's like, man, this is... I, I couldn't... I had I, never seen anything like it, and it was kind of hard to kind of hard to handle, kind of, you know, to deal with, because you couldn't really separate yourself from it. Um, uh, but my, my point is, is simply that, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, if you live in that culture, right, if I lived there, you would eventually become desensitized to that sort of thing. But Paul, when he first went into Athens, kind of like when, when I went to Athens, he wasn't desensitized, right? His spirit was provoked, his spirit was stirred up, his spirit was aroused to anger. And so what is, is his response to that idolatry? Verse 17, Acts 17, verse 17. Therefore, because his spirit was provoked at the idolatry, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, so th those would have been the God-fearers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So Paul's response to the idolatry to the idolatry-soaked culture was simply to preach Jesus, right? He began to reason in the synagogue and in the marketplace with anybody who would listen. Do you know that the main way Christians are to transform an idolatrous culture is not through the force of law? You know, sometimes we almost make an idol of our uh, elections, right? If we just vote in the right people, we're going to have the most righteous laws and we'll become a Christian nation, right? Now, I am all for voting in righteous people. I am all for righteous civil law. But the main way that we are going to change culture is through getting people to worship the right God, right? It's to getting people to worship Jesus. It's to getting people to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. It is to setting up strong beachheads of the kingdom, which is the local church. And that is the thing that Paul was seeking to do. He was seeking to establish a beachhead of believers in that idolatrous community that they themselves would experience the freedom of Jesus Christ and they could be a salt and they could be a light to that pagan culture. Now, you know, when I think of an idolatry-soaked culture where people don't know who God is, and in turn, then they don't know who they are themselves, I, I think of our culture today, right? You know, a lot of people think of, say, primitive cultures right around the world who haven't maybe been uh, as uh, transformed by Western civilization. And they say they still got the statues and they got the voodoo and they do these practices. Well, yeah, that's a form of idolatry. That's one form of idolatry. But there's another form of idolatry, which is the idolatry of the pagan philosophy. And that's what actually Paul deals with more than, than anything in Athens. He's not dealing with necessarily the people who are worshiping the, the idols, but he's dealing with the pagan philosophy. And, you know, we have a lot of pagan philosophy in our own world here in America, right? And the tip of that iceberg, where it just becomes, to me, just prominent that we no longer know who we are, because we no longer know who God is, 
is I saw a, a poll this last week, and it was alarming to me. It was a poll. It wasn't a poll done by Christians. It was a poll. It was a Gallup poll. Okay, so if anything, I think this would be underperforming what the reality is. But in the Gallup poll, it says that people, all people, right, all Americans born 1980 or before. So this would be Gen X, baby boomers, greatest generation. 2.5 percent of people identify as LGBT. Okay. Now, for millennials, that jumps three times, jumps to 7.5%. Millennials is, uh, I think, up to about age 27, 27 up to about 40. For Gen Z, it jumps up to 25%. 25% of our kids in high school and in college identify as LGBT. Now, that is a one thousand percent increase. That is a tenfold increase. What does that mean? It means it is being socially engineered. It means it is the result of pagan philosophy that has infiltrated culture and that these kids, their roots are sunk into this pagan philosophy, whether it's through social media, whether it's through pornography, whether it's through activist curriculum that they're getting at school. And what is it doing, whether it's through evolutionary teaching? It's teaching them to think that they're not creatures of God. They no longer know that God made them male and female. They no longer know, uh, you know, who they are. Why? Because they don't know who God is. And this is just, of course, just one, just one of the tips of the iceberg, of the many tips of iceberg. And I don't mean to, you know, to, to say that all these people are great sinners. No, we're all great sinners. But my point is, my point is simply to say that the deception of our children being taken captive by pagan philosophy is really great. And so my heart is stirred. My heart is provoked. And I want to say, you know, we need to, to, to get these kids to understand who God is so they can understand who they are. And, you know, we need to, to see a, a revolution of the Holy Spirit, which will hopefully transform the basic structures of, of all of these uh, schools that are allowing this activist curriculum and everything else. That's, that's brainwashing them, right? That's a societal destructive thing. If 25% of the populace is no longer going to be able to be in relationships that can reproduce, and you're already having lower rates of marriage and lower rates of reproduction, guess what? Society is about to fall in a generation or two unless something changes, right? Well, you know, and, and what needs to change is that we, we need people to understand who they are, who they have as God as creator, and who they have in Jesus as their redeemers, new creations in Christ, and, and they can be freed from pagan philosophy. Well, let's, let's get on, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, eventually, um, after uh, Paul is... Uh, preaching here in the marketplace and in the synagogues, he's led in the front of the big wig intellectuals, the philosophers who meet at Mars Hill. So let's look at verse 18. It says this, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So, we're told that the content of Paul's message in the synagogues, in the marketplace, was Jesus and the resurrection. I think... Saying Paul, Luke saying it was Jesus is simply shorthand for who Jesus was, what he did in life, what his death meant, and why it is significant that he rose again from the grave. Well, there were many philosophers right there, like I said, who had subsidized teaching positions. Uh, and uh, actually, four of the different pagan philosophies had subsidized teaching positions there. Two of them being the Epicureans and the Stoics, the other two being the Platonists, and the peripatetics. Well, these guys, you know, um, 
they hear Paul's speech in the marketplace. They hear he must be causing a stir. He must be causing people to believe in this new teaching that he's giving. And so, you know, um, they're curious about what Paul is saying, right? They want to get to the bottom of this truth. And, and, you know, that's a great character quality, to be curious, to, to be open to the truth. And who is the truth? It is Jesus Christ. And so when these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers hear what, what Paul is saying, they decide he needs to be brought before the famous council at Mars Hill. This council was prominent among the three parts of the government there, and Paul fell under their jurisdiction because they um, were the ones who had to survey all of the introduction of foreign gods. So they're thinking he's talking about some foreign god, so they bring him before this eminent council. These would have been the great philosophical teachers, the bigwigs of the ancient world. It would have been like Paul, you know, walking into the great classic departments at Oxford or, or Harvard or something like that. And, and, and he's speaking to all these guys who, who know the ancient language as well, who know all the great works of ancient literature well. And, and he's standing there and he's, he's saying, I know that God loves these people. And he's thinking, I have such a great opportunity right now that I can speak to these influential people. So he's probably thinking, Holy Spirit, give me the words to say. Give me a contact point where I can speak into the lives of these great eminent philosophers. And maybe the culture can begin to shift here in Athens with the influence of the kingdom. So, so let's look what he, what he says in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that, all thing, uh, that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So what does Paul do when he starts his speech? His strategy is to acknowledge their sensitivity to spiritual things, right? He calls them very religious. In a sense, he's patting them on the back for actually caring about divine things. Then he attempts to make an even greater point of contact with them by pointing to an altar that he saw among all of their other altars. But this altar was different from them. There was some sense of humility to this altar, it simply read, to the unknown God. Now, the history of this altar, we actually have. Luke doesn't record it for us, but we do know something of it from an early Greek historian named Diogenes Laertes. And in his book, The Lives of Eminent Philosophers, he talks about a philosopher by the name of Epimenides, who was from the island of Crete who responded to the Athens asking for help over a plague that was plaguing their city several centuries before Paul had arrived there. And when, when this guy, Epimenides, from Crete arrived in Athens, he, he, he obtained two different flocks of sheep, a, a, a flock of white sheep and a flock of black sheep, and, and he said, I want all of these sheep to be hungry, and when you bring them before me in the morning, we're going to send them out to feast on the great green grass. But he says, if any of the sheep who are very hungry decide they don't want to feast and they lay down somewhere, we're going to recognize that this is the sheep that God once offered to him, sacrificed to him. And so the Athenians are like, okay, this sounds kind of weird. But they go on with this guy's plan. And it happens. Some sheep actually lay down and they don't eat even though they're all hungry sheep. So they say, wow, this guy was right. Let's offer this sheep in sacrifice. So they offer the sheep in sacrifice, and this guy, uh, Epimenides, he said, you know, we should recognize that this is the greater God than any of the gods you serve. It is to the unknown God. And what happens, uh, this historian tells us, is that the plague ceased from Athens. Now, it is most likely that Paul knew the history of this unknown altar. Why? Because he quotes this philosopher right after this. He, he quotes Epimenides as he quotes him also to Titus in the work of Titus. 
And so he knows the, the history of these things, and he says, this God who rid the, you of this plague several centuries before, who you worship and you don't even know who he is, I'm going to tell you who he is. This is the God, the one true God, who has come in the flesh of the person of Jesus Christ. And that altar was a great point of contact for Paul to share that message. Now, I mentioned in the announcements that this Wednesday, I want to look at a lot of the different point of contacts missionaries have used around the world when preaching the gospel. Really cool stuff. We're going to look at things like the Chinese alphabet. We're going to look at things like the Karen people in, in, in Asia and, and all sorts of interesting cultures where God clearly has been work amongst all sorts of different primitive groups. And, and he has left remnants of his revelation. So, so when people come and do preach the gospel and they make the connection points to these remnants of revelation, there's an explosion of evangelism. And that's what Paul, I think, is trying to do here. You know, when, when we share the gospel with people who know little or nothing about Jesus or the Bible, sometimes it can be helpful to find something in someone's life or culture that will hate, help them make more sense of the gospel, right? Some people will just reject you if you're holding up a Bible and waving it and shouting verses at them, right? But God has always been at work providentially in the background of people's lives. And many times we can point to something that they understand as a work of God in their life and show them how it makes a connection ultimately to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does Paul say next about this unknown God who he's revealing to them? It says this in Acts 17, verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now God himself made, the, even though God commanded the Israelites to build a temple for him, right? He, he made a point that I do not dwell in that temple. That is where my footstool is and I manifest my special presence there but the whole universe can't contain me, right? I, I'm the creator of the universe. So Israel even knew this, even though they had a temple themselves. It wasn't a temple in the same way some of the pagan temples uh, were, and, and Paul's making that clear here. Verse 25, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So after Paul makes his point of contact, referring to the altar to the unknown God, who they're already worshiping, he then moves to the realm of revelation, which is ultimate truth. He moves to what the scriptures teach. Even though he doesn't quote directly from scripture, he alludes to the scripture. And the first thing he says is that God is our creator. This would have uh, not struck a chord with the... Uh, um, Epicurean philosophers he's with. Paul says that he made the world, God made the world and everything in it. That would, you know, yeah, praise the Lord for that. But this would have been taboo to the Epicurean philosophers because they believed that matter was eternal. In fact, they believed that everything in creation was reducible to atoms. Atomic theory actually began with these Greek philosophers thousands of years before atoms were even discovered. And in many ways, their philosophy was the ground from which modern-day evolutionary theory developed out of. So the truth that God created the world and everything in it is still a radical and taboo thought in our secular world today. In fact, it's not allowed to be taught in our school systems. Rather, they simply tell students that the world came about after some sort of, um, you know, eternal matter that was the size of, of, of a pin exploded. <laughs> and there was some sort of pseudoscientific chemical evolution that can't be replicated in any sort of uh, laboratory or even in theory. And then after that, out of this chemical evolution, came out of this big mass explosion where 96% of stuff is what they call ghost matter. It's black matter, black energy. That just means they need 96% of everything in the universe, things they can't detect, to be there so it works for their mathematical fudge factors for their system to work. But the reason it, that that stuff doesn't exist, they tell you it exists, but it doesn't exist. And then there was a miracle, they say, of abiogenesis, life coming out of nothing, meaning the miraculous evolution 
from inorganic substances, something that has never been observed, it has never been replicated in a laboratory, but our kids are told that it happens simply because the idea that God created the world and everything in it is taboo. Then after the myth of abiogenesis, we're told that the miracle of the cell was born, a factory more complex than modern computer systems. Then we're told that a multi-cell organism miraculously evolved. Then a fish came about, then a mammal, then an ape, and then 4, years, 4 million years ago, Lucy came about. Right? She was the first apish human. Wow. The ancestor of you and me. But there were multiple Lucys because there's polygenesis. And, you know, all of this to me is what I just called the great mythology of science. Number one, it isn't science. It's a modern mythology, but it is what is taught as religion in our school systems. In contrast, the Bible teaches that God created the world and everything in it, and he told us how he did it. In fact, he has 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1 telling us exactly how he created everything. And what does he tell us? He created everything according to its kind. He created all the plants according to their kind. He created all the fish according to their kind. Created all the birds according to their kind. He created all the animals according to their kind. And guess what? He created after all the animals, he created humankind. And, and this is, you know, the truth of, of what the scripture teaches, right? Whereas, you know, uh, um, the, the secularists believe in something, you know, where we believe everyone comes from Adam, the secularists all teach something called polygenesis, that we all descended from multiple different kinds of apes, and that some people groups are more along the evolutionary chain of things, so they're more of the superpower, Superman. This is where actually Nazis believed in this sort of thing, and this is why they believed they were superior to everybody else, because they were the superior race. What is that born from? It's born from evolutionary theory. It's a lie. In fact, though, the ancient Greeks believed in that too, the people Paul is speaking to. The same people who believed in eternal matter and evolutionary theory, all reducible down to the atom, they also believed in polygenesis. They believed that they originated from their own soil in the land of Attica. So what does Paul say to them? Verse 26, Acts 17, verse 26. And he is made from one blood. Ooh, another radical thing he's saying to them. He is made from one blood, Adam, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. <laughs> so the second revealed truth, Paul speaks to these eminent philosophers, is that God scattered all the different people groups throughout the world for a period of history. He did that at Babel. With the intention that they would seek after him. And he makes clear that all mankind descended from Adam. And when they were scattered, they were not left devoid of all revelation. The stories of creation and Noah stuck with them, and the themes of redemption that are tied into those stories stuck with them. And also God providentially put them in the world in such a way that they would seek after him. And, and yet while he revealed himself in a special way to Abraham and to Abraham's children, the nation of Israel, God was not fully absent from all the other people groups. For look what he goes on to say in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature as like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So now instead of quoting scripture to back up the scriptural truth he's teaching, he actually quotes from two eminent uh, Greek pagan philosophers. He's making another contact point with them. He's pointing out truths even in their secular literature. You know, it's not bad to read secular literature. It's not bad to read pagan philosophers. It's just this stuff always needs to be brought to the plumb line of Scripture. And whenever we find remnants of truth or we find remnants of things in, in books that aren't of Scripture, that's okay. You know, uh, just baptize them and say, oh, we're going to pull out this truth and use it as a contact point for people, right? And so he quotes first Epimenides, the guy who came and established the unknown altar. 
And Epimenides said, in him we live and move and have our being. And then secondly, he quotes a guy by the name of Eretus, who was from the same place Paul was born, which is Cilicia. And in, 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 in one of his poems, this is what um, Eretus says. It says, we are his offspring, talking about the God that transcended all of the pagan gods. We are his offspring. Paul goes on to quote this pagan philosopher again in Titus 1 verse 12, where he says all Cretans are like lazy and uh, I, uh, I don't know, something like that. And he's saying, yeah, that pagan philosopher is, is true. You guys are pretty lazy. <laughs> but it's from that same passage here. He's making use of it. And so um, what, what does it go on to say? Um, what does Paul go on to say after quoting those two philosophers? Verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. Wow, God is merciful, huh? Aren't you glad that God overlooked the times of innocence or ignorance? <laughs> In fact, uh, other translations say he winked at it. In fact, Romans 3 says the reason Jesus had to die on the cross and suffer the penalty of our sins is because God had overlooked the past sins. So he is making good on his overlooking and really forgiving those past sins by dying on the cross for sins that were in the past and sins that were in the future. But now was it saying, verse 30, Paul says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul ends by moving back, now from the Greek philosophers, to Revelation. He talks about how God has done a new thing, how the scattered nations are now to be gathered around one common message, and that is the message of what God has done in sending Jesus Christ. People are called upon to repent and understand that one day Christ Jesus would judge them uh, for God had raised him from the dead. Now, you know, I imagine Paul likely related how he had even seen Jesus, the resurrected Lord, on the road to Damascus and had given them many other further proofs of resurrection. But we're told, you know, that, that, that when uh, some people hear this, let's go to verse 32. This is what happens. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, just meaning he was one of the council members there who was listening to Paul, so an eminent philosopher, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So the majority of the council, the majority of the philosophers listening to Paul, once he gets to talking about a bodily resurrection, they start laughing. They mock him. They say, this is silly. I can't believe this sort of thing. In fact, one of the, the prominent Greek plays that they would regularly put on, the, the god, their god Apollo, says this, when the dust has soaked up the blood of man once he has died, there is no resurrection. And in fact, Cicero says this about uh, the Stoics. The Stoics say that souls will endure for a while. They deny that they will endure forever. And then um, he says, he contrasts that to Epicureans who believe that the soul is mortal, meaning it dies too. So not only did they believe that the body doesn't rise to new life, a lot of them, including most of the Epicureans and the Stoics who brought him to the council, don't even believe in the continuance of the soul forever. And so what is Paul teaching? He's continuing of the continuance of both things forever. Our soul is immortal, and our body is raised to a mortal life. And the question is, where will we spend that eternity? Will we spend, spend that eternity with Christ in the bliss of paradise? Or will we spend that eternity away from Christ in the torments of hell? And this is a radical thought that men would be raised into newness of life. But the beautiful thing is that there is a prominent man who believes and a prominent woman who believes. And others tell him that they want to hear more. His speech is not without fruit. 
I imagine that this guy Dionysius becomes an important leader in the church there, meeting with other members who became believers in the synagogue and the marketplace. In fact, later church tradition says that this man Dionysius became the main overseer of the church in that part of Greece. So I just want to end with, with this. I want to look at, uh, I think I have a slide here, uh, about Paul's, what I call Paul's apologetic pro progression, meaning apologetic just means the defense of the faith. How is he defending his faith to those who are steeped in pagan philosophy? Number one, he wants to show them who God is. He's the creator of all things. And he does them by appealing to things in their own culture, in their own philosophies. And then ultimately he does it by seeding the scriptures, even though he doesn't necessarily quote the scriptures. Then what does he move on to? Number two, he shows them who man is. This is one of the great tragedies of our day. As I mentioned, we no longer know who we are. But he shows them that even some of their own philosophers will point out that they know who they are. They are his offspring. To put it in Christian language, we are his image bearers. To put it in redemptive language, we are his sons and daughters adopted into the family of Jesus Christ. Show who God is. Show who man is. And then number three, make clear man's responsibility before God. What is man's responsibility before God? that we are called to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That our spirits are supposed to be provoked or to be aroused by idolatrous culture. That we are to be in love with who Jesus Christ is and to see His kingdom flourish in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Number four, He wants to make clear that man is accountable before God. Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and of the dead. In fact, I just want to, that makes me think of a verse from Timothy. Let me uh, pull it up here. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says this. This is Paul writing to his travel companion Timothy, who he's waiting for there in Athens. He says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. You know, when your conscience is seared with a hot iron, you're no longer provoked from within, like Paul was in Athens. Verse 3, they're forbidding to marry, they're religious in that sense, and they're commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Amen? Um, and you know what? That verse was good, but I actually meant to read 2 Timothy 4, <laughs> which says this, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, and exhort, for the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So the reason why we teach the word, the reason why we convince, rebuke, and exhort, the reason why Paul says to be ready in season and out of season, to be immersed in the truth of Scripture, is because um, we will be judged the living and the dead will be judged at his appearing and in his kingdom by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what does that mean? It means we are to repent and believe the gospel. It means we are to trust in our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us while we were yet sinners, who died for us when we were at our worst. We're to see the magnificent love of God displayed at the cross, and we're to put our trust and our confidence there, and we're to say, if God loves me this much, then whatever he says in his word must be a word of love as well. So I'm going to follow that word of love, whether I like it, whether I understand it or not. I know that God wrote it because he loves me and he desires to see my life conform to his own life. So I'm going to do my best by the grace of the Holy Spirit in me to be conformed to what his word says. Because he loves me that much. He loves me with his arms stretched out on the cross. So instead of being conformed to the culture, 
I'm going to be conformed to Christ. And I'm going to do that by being in His Word and by allowing the Holy Spirit, by, by having a, re a relationship with the Holy Spirit and allowing Him to do a work in my life. So the last thing I just want to say, here's maybe three takeaways. Take we are called to preach a message and we're called to leave the results up to God. You know, Paul didn't necessarily get a lot of believers here when he's preaching, right, at Mars Hill. He might have got a lot in the marketplace. He might have got a lot in the synagogue, but he didn't get a whole lot here. But he did plant seeds. More people did want to hear more. He did get an eminent philosopher to believe. And so our duty is just to, to rely on the Holy Spirit, to be diligent, to be good witnesses, and allow God to, to, do, uh, to work in people's hearts. Number two, what we think about God and how we think about God, it matters to Him. God really does care about idolatry, not just idols that people worship, but pagan thought patterns, pagan philosophies that infiltrate how we think about Him and how we think about one another. So, as John says, my little children, keep yourself from idols. The way we keep ourselves from idols is by keeping ourselves in the Word. Number three, God commands all men everywhere to repent. We're to repent about our wrong ideas about God. We're to repent about our chosen philosophies instead of the straightforward Word of God. We're to turn our minds, we're to turn our hearts to the living God. Uh, we're we're to, to repent about our chosen bondages to sin. We're to repent about the hardness of our heart. We're to repent about our laziness, our greed, our unbelief, our anger. Right? We could go on and on to all the sorts of things we need to repent about. But as we realize, wow, I am a mess, and Lord, I repent, and I, and I turn away from these things, and I turn to you. Help me find total freedom from these things. God will do a work in our life. Amen? The reason He wants us to repent is because He knows that leads to our freedom. He knows it leads to our flourishing, and he knows it leads ultimately to a beautiful relationship with him. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for every person here, Lord. Maybe there's someone here. Maybe there's someone even watching online, Lord. And they just know there's something that they need to repent from. There's some sort of worldview. There's some sort of sin. Maybe they've never turned to you in faith before, Lord Jesus. Lord, well, I just pray, Lord, that as we take this moment of stillness before you, Lord, Lord, as, as they hear in their hearts, Lord, that you are the Lord of glory who died for their sins, who rose again from their dead, the one whom we will stand before in judgment, Lord. We just make a profession of faith together. I just invite you to say after me, say, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for dying on the cross for all of my sins. Thank you for rising again and bringing about newness of life. I say you would just send your Holy Spirit to reside in me. Holy Spirit, I desire to have a relationship with you. Conform me into the image of Jesus Christ. May my mind be washed and renewed with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Well, maybe that was your first time to pray a prayer like that. I invite you, please come and talk with me. I would love to speak with you more on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and enter into his newness of life. So if you're here, we like